Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, July 8th, and this is your FT News Briefing. The political pressure finally caught up with Boris Johnson. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. And commodities have been going up, up, up. But the story's become a bit more complicated. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. After mounting pressure from lawmakers, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson yesterday finally resigned as leader of the ruling Conservative Party. I know that there will be many people who are relieved and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. Johnson said he'll stay on as prime minister until a new leader is chosen. His decision came after dozens of his ministers and other Tory lawmakers quit in an attempt to force him to resign. Johnson's been dogged by scandals over the past few years, but the final straw was his decision to promote an ally who was facing sexual misconduct allegations. For more insight, I hosted a Twitter space discussion yesterday with the FT's Robert Shrimsley, he's our UK chief political commentator, and Stephen Bush. He writes an FT column on British politics. Here's part of the conversation. Robert, the conservatives are going to have to figure out who's going to lead the party. Do we have any contenders? Are there any contenders? I think the bigger question is, aren't there any contenders? There are so many people potentially putting their hats into the ring. The key figures, I would say, you have the two men who resigned, Rishi Sunak and Sajid Javid, who can say, look, we actually took a stand. We were brave. You have the new Chancellor Exchequer, Nadim Zahawi, and the current Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, both of whom will run from a sort of Thatcherite economic position. I think there's going to be a bit of a shakeout in the next few days, as candidates get the lie of the land and get a sense of what are the issues that are going to drive this contest? And it seems to me there are a few. The first is the issue of integrity and a commitment to doing things better, not lying, which obviously everybody will promise to do. Then you have the people who, like I think Nadim Zahawi, who'll run a strong tax-cutting agenda. And then Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, is much more fiscally orthodox. And one of the reasons why he lost popularity is because he kept putting up taxes to pay for spending and believing that the books have to be balanced. You'll definitely have the issue of climate change policy. It's an important point about Boris Johnson that unlike, for example, Donald Trump, although he was a, quite a populist conservative, he never ever resiled from the climate change agenda. And then you'll have issues like who's going to be hardline on Brexit, because there are many in the Conservative Party who would like to see a slightly less confrontational approach. But on the other hand, they don't want too much of a cordial relationship with the European Union because the party is a party of Brexit. But as you can see, just from me blathering a bit a bit here, you've got a lot of people and a lot of issues to unpack, and it's going to take a few days before we can really be clear which ones are the absolute front runners. You mentioned Trump, and it's hard not to draw the comparison. I, I'm, I don't actually buy this. I, I, really? I, I think, I think these, these comparisons are, are, are much too, too easy. I mean, the fundamental impact that Boris Johnson's had on the Conservative Party is Brexit. Everything else the Conservative Party has done has been fairly mainstream, for certainly for a, a Conservative Party in British politics. Brexit was the outlying issue, and then the disrespect for the institutions and the rules of law. Boris Johnson, I think, is much more of an aberration within the Conservative Party in his unconventionality and his disregard 
for rules. And I think that kind of stuff will go. And fundamentally also, the truth is different in the Conservative Party and the Republican Party is that while the Conservative Party may have taken a very long time to act against him, they did act against him, whereas the Republican Party never got round to acting against Donald Trump. Does Johnson's departure signal anything to the rest of the world? Especially- is that me or Stephen you're asking? Dealer's choice. Let Stephen have a go first. <laughs> uh, oh, oh dear. Um, <laughs> oh, I can skip this one if you want, guys. I'm not convinced it does signal all that much, right? You know, I'm going to do what columnists love to do. I'm going to do a broad and deeply flawed generalization, which is awesome. a, essentially, I, if, if you basically say that there are three types of democracy, dominant party ones where, you know, whether you're Sweden or yeah, the United Kingdom, a country where one party wins a heck of a lot more than any of the others. And then you have ones like the United States, say, where broadly the two parties are in office a roughly equal amount of time. And in some ways, right, the success of the Conservative Party is, you know, like Madonna, it has always found a way to adjust to different times. And I think then um, in some ways all we're seeing at the moment is the Conservative Party doing its regeneration-y thing. That, I think, doesn't teach us all that much about the global picture, because in most other democracies, they are more competitive than UK elections have tended to be, historically speaking. Robert, I know you got to hop off in two minutes, so um, I'm going to do this question that everybody loves to hate. How will history look back on Boris Johnson and the time that he was prime minister? Well, he is a prime minister of, of obvious historical significance. You know, there are plenty of prime ministers that we forget about. We're not going to forget about Boris Johnson in a hurry. He is the prime minister who delivered Brexit. They will judge it in the way that they judge Brexit. If Brexit is deemed to be the economic disaster, or at least the economic slow puncture that many, including me, think it will be and is, if it ends up breaking up the union because it speeds up, for example, Scottish independence, then Boris Johnson will be remembered as the man who broke up the UK and delivered a disastrous economic policy. If you're one of those people who thinks actually Brexit will come right in the end, then he will be remembered more favourably. But I have to say, he will be remembered, that's for sure. Stephen, same question for you. Um, well, I think in lots of ways, he's, he's a kind of fascinating mirror image of, of Edward Heath, who was British Prime Minister from 1970 to 1974. Edward Heath's government did one very big thing, which changed the UK economy, which was to take us into the then European economic community, now the EU. And in some ways, right, we have you know, Prime Minister's victory in the 2019 election did, at least for the short term, set us on this granite hard Brexit. He is, I think, a similarly consequential prime minister. But to slightly disagree with Robert, I think it's worth noting that the fact I had to explain who Ted Heath was does show that just because you're economically consequential doesn't mean that you're remembered. And I think there's a good chance that actually Boris Johnson becomes one of that kind of fungible list of, you know, the multiple conservative prime ministers who governed the country from 2010 to 2020-something or 2030-something. That was Robert Shrimsley, the FT's UK chief political commentator and UK editor-at-large, and Stephen Bush, an associate editor and political columnist for the FT. We spoke yesterday in a Twitter space about Boris Johnson's resignation. You can listen to the whole Twitter space discussion if you're interested. We'll have the link in the show notes. We talk a lot about inflation. It's just the elephant in the room these days. Fast-rising prices are roiling economies and governments. 
And underneath many of the consumer price rises are skyrocketing commodities. Everything from oil to grain to metals have been going up and fast. But over the past two weeks, commodity prices have fallen. To talk about what's going on and what this might mean for inflation, I'm joined by the FT's financial reporter, Ethan Wu. Hey, Ethan. Hi, Mark. So, Ethan, why are commodity prices falling? What's going on? As best we can tell, it looks like hedge funds, right, companies that speculate on the direction of commodities prices, are making big bets that commodities are going to fall. Uh, you know, previously they had been betting that the price was going to go up, that there were all these shortages all around the world, that there was going to be lots of demand, and now they're, they're reversing that bet. They're saying it's actually going to go down. So just to clear things up, we're, we're talking about the futures market here. These are the bets that, that hedge funds are placing now, thinking that maybe you down the line, they'll cash in on prices being lower, right? Right. I, I think it's important to distinguish that th- there are futures markets where financial instruments are traded by hedge funds, and then there's the physical markets where people are actually trading bushels of wheat or barrels of oil. And these are related, but not necessarily the same. Um, both markets have moved. You're, you're seeing commodities prices falling in, in both sides of the market. But because this is a speculative change because there has not really been a fundamental shift in how many commodities there are or how many commodities the world is currently demanding, uh, you could see pretty violent price reversals. And and so we saw a little bit of that yesterday. Prices bounced back from the big drop over the last two weeks, not enough to recover the pretty steep losses. But I think it shows that these markets are very uncertain. Uh, they're highly volatile. And speculative trades have a tendency to unwind if they're wrong. So why are hedge funds betting against commodities right now? Um, Hedge funds are worried that a lot of the bad economic data that we've gotten from lots of different countries over the past couple of weeks makes it look like the world is headed for a recession. And I know that the news briefing has had on Martin Wolf, uh, who's a lot better on this than, than I am. But the general point is that if you know, if economies fall into recession, there's less demand for physical commodities all around the world. If there's less demand, it's not going to fetch as high of a price. And so, you know, that's not guaranteed that there's going to be a global recession. It's not guaranteed that demand is going to fall off. But it's at least like an educated bet that you could make. And if you're right, as a hedge fund, make a lot of money off that trade. Ethan Wu is our financial reporter. He also writes our unhedged newsletter with our buddy Rob Armstrong. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. Thanks so much, Ethan. Thank you, Mark. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Sonia Hudson, Fiona Simon, and me, Mark Filipino. Our editor is Jess Smith. We had help this week from Michael Lello, David De Silva, Peter Barber, Gavin Coleman, and Breen Turner. Our executive producer is Topher Forges. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. And our theme song is by Metaphor Music. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. 
Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.